Hello and welcome to the latest podcast from Heart BMJ Journals. I'm Dr Alistair Lindsay, speaking to you from BME House here in central London. The subject of today's podcast is a paper recently published in Heart from the University of Glasgow, entitled Obesity is Associated with Fatal Coronary Heart Disease Independently of Traditional Risk Factors and Deprivation. In this paper, Dr Jennifer Logue and colleagues from the University of Glasgow examine the relationship of obesity to both fatal and non-fatal cardiac outcomes, particularly in relation to other cardiovascular risk factors. Dr Logue joins me on the line now. Good evening, Jennifer. Uh, well, thank you very much for your paper, which we, we greatly enjoyed here at heart. Uh, this subject of obesity is obviously uh, one that's going to be huge for the future of cardiovascular medicine in general. Uh, I wonder if you could give us just a, a brief oversight of what we know about obesity and its role in cardiovascular disease at the moment. It is pretty well established that obesity is linked to cardiovascular disease and that's a graded uh, association in that the more obese a person is, the higher their risk of cardiovascular disease. We think that that is due to the fact that people that are obese have higher blood pressure, higher cholesterol, and are more likely to have diabetes than people that are not obese. Mm-hmm. And those are the reasons, until now, that it's been thought that obesity is linked to cardiovascular disease. Yes, and one of the things that uh, I enjoyed reading your paper because it reminded me was that this association between obesity and, and heart disease is a J-shaped curve. Is that correct? Yes, well, this isn't just for cardiovascular disease. This is actually seen in the association between obesity and a large number of conditions. I see. And it's not something that, that's really fully understood. The problem is it looks like, if you look at the data, that the lowest risk category is somewhere around about a BMI of 25 up to about 27. Yes, I was pleased to read that, I have to say. Well, a lot of people are, but of course that goes against what we generally think of as being a normal, healthy body mass index. Uh The problem is that when you're simply doing a cross-sectional epidemiological study, you have the fact that people that are ill or have underlying uh, disease tend to be losing weight, so they tend to be lighter. Also as you know, the reason that half of Hollywood smoke is that smoking makes you lighter. Smoking also makes you die a lot sooner. Right, and okay. so these um, confounding factors mean that lighter people tend to look as if they have increased mortality. There's also another sort of reverse causality fact to it, which maybe doesn't quite fit in with this paper, but with other things in that if someone gets diabetes at a BMI of 40, Yes. Well, that's quite normal. We wouldn't think anything of that. But if someone developed diabetes with a BMI of 23, and it was definitely type 2 diabetes, they have something else going on. It's not just because they've got excess body weight that's causing them to get the diabetes. They may have a genetic predisposition to it or another problem going on. So it might be that the disease, the spectrum of disease is not actually the same at each BMI. I see. So a, a number a number of factors there. And yeah. I, I see in your analysis, one of the ways you tried to correct for the first problem you mentioned about people mm-hmm. who would be losing weight because of uh, other diseases such as cancer is that you excluded people in this paper uh, w- within two years. Is that correct? Yes. I mean, that's quite a common thing that people do now. Right. You certainly, there's no predetermined amount of time that you exclude, but you would certainly exclude as much as your study length allows you to do. 
Right. So that's very interesting. And I wondered if we could talk a little bit more before we went into more detail in the study mm-hmm. about another very important point that you highlight is that individual cardiovascular risk factors uh, are now being studied for their effect both on fatal and non-fatal coronary disease mortality. Yes. And I'd previously never made that distinction uh, very well, I have to say. Could you tell us a little bit more about that and obesity's role in fatal versus non-fatal events? Yeah, certainly. You're right. You won't have heard of it. And part of the reason for that is actually probably just the data that we've had available. A lot of the studies, if you don't have a very high event rate, then you have to lump together the non-fatal and the fatal cardiovascular events in order to have enough cardiovascular events to be able to show a statistical difference. I see, so it's a composite endpoint of sorts. Yeah, that's certainly part of the reason. So you need to have a high number of events in order to be able to split it into fatal and non-fatal. And I feel it was generally presumed that having a fatal MI versus a non-fatal MI was just a severity of the same condition. However, work that was done not by myself, but within our group at Glasgow University using the PROSPER study, which was the cohort from the statin study in elderly people, showed that, in fact, if you looked at fatal and non-fatal and the link with inflammatory markers, particularly interleukin-6, that there was actually a difference with that inflammatory marker only really being related fatal cardiovascular events and not non-fatal cardiovascular events. I see. So an indication of some pathophysiological differences there between these two syndromes. Yes. Okay. So, well, we can talk a bit more about that in a moment because Mm -hmm. obviously your paper uh, explores the role of obesity in uh, fatal versus non-fatal events. Mm -hmm. Um, Has, uh, for diabetes and for hypertension and cholesterol, uh, you mentioned just there, has this been proven to be different? No. Well, as far as I'm aware... The only work where a difference has been shown has been in the inflammatory markers, which has been done within our group. Okay, so you looked at uh, the the WASCOP study, which Mm -hmm. is obviously a landmark uh, trial in cardiovascular medicine. Could you just very briefly remind us of the uh, background of the WASCOP study and the patient population? Yeah, well, this was a study that was done in Glasgow, though, um, before I think I was even at university. <laughs> and it's obviously the West of Scotland Coronary Prevention Study. And you're right in saying this was a landmark study in the use of statins. It was in men who had not had a cardiovascular event but were at moderate risk of having a cardiovascular event. So they had a high cholesterol. They lived in Glasgow. It was always a risk factor. <laughs> um, a large amount of them smoked. And they went on to statins. And that went on to prove that statins reduced your cardiovascular risk. We've been very fortunate that we've kept this cohort going Mm. through data linkage in NHS Scotland, and we've been able to follow up continuously for the last 15 years as to whether these people have gone on to have heart attacks, strokes, cancer, whether they've died and what they've died of. And that's what we've used for this study today. Okay. So, uh, a well-known study, a nice uh, population to interrogate. And mm-hmm. um, what, what were your main outcome measures you were looking at here? Uh, was it primarily just fatal versus non-fatal coronary events? Well, I think the, the main thing that we actually wanted to look at in this study was how the fatal and the non-fatal events were related to the obesity. As mm. I said at the beginning of the interview, you know, if I, if I stopped anyone in the street and asked them if obesity causes heart attacks, they would tell me that, yes, of course it does. And that is known. But it was to look to see whether that effect was still there if you took into account all the other factors. So you took into account the fact that 
being obese makes your cholesterol higher, your blood pressure higher. It gives you more diabetes. So you take that all out of the equation and see if there's still an increased risk that's caused just by the obesity or some other factor related to the obesity. And that was what we looked at here. I see. And um, moving on to your findings, so if you look at particularly non-fatal events, did you find any differences for the risk-adjusted versus the non-risk-adjusted population? No, when we um, looked at the link between non-fatal and increasing categories of BMI, we did not see any relationship. Okay, and contrasting that with fatal events? Well, when we looked at fatal, obviously, we did this in two steps. First of all, we just simply randomised for the treatment with this having been the WASCOPS randomised control trial of statins. So we took out any effect that statins would have had and age of the participants. Mm -hmm. And when we looked at that, there was a graded association with increasing BMI and um, increasing risk of fatal coronary heart disease events. When we then adjusted for factors such as smoking, blood pressure, hypertension, hypercholesterolemia, and also things such as the drugs that the patients were on, which obviously could have a protective effect, and also something which often is not adjusted for, but we know to be um, an actual risk factor for cardiovascular disease and other diseases, social deprivation. When we adjusted for all those factors, in fact, that relationship was not completely attenuated and Mm. still, still existed. So in other words, uh, even with a risk-adjusted model, the risk from obesity, particularly of fatal coronary events, persisted. Yes. So that's quite a powerful message, isn't it? That being overweight, and we must stress here that this is a a BMI of over 30, I think it was, you found the risk was associated with. But particularly high BMI such as that was associated with an increased risk of fatal coronary events. Yeah. I mean, I think I must put caution to our results in that we did not have a huge number of men with a BMI over 30 just due to the fact that this was you know, 20 years ago that we recruited to this study and people were just not as big. Yes. So the numbers were not huge and therefore you know, the confidence intervals around this are wide. We would probably take these results more as being hypothesis generating rather than definite. That being said, I never think that we can say the message clearly and loudly enough that being obese and the current obesity epidemic we have in our population is not good for people's health. But I do think that actually I would encourage other researchers with cohorts to repeat our analysis using their data to try and give more weight to our findings. Yes, I I think that's a a great call. I think Mm. there's probably plenty of data out there that could be looked at in a similar light. It'd be interesting to see what that shows. As regards the obesity epidemic, certainly from from what I read and understand, this is something that is uh, still to to hit us with full force. Uh, There's a childhood obesity epidemic, obviously, uh, and how that translates through to adults is going to be quite marred. Would you agree? Well, I think so. I mean, I think we're already starting to see that within the um, obesity research conferences. We seem to be hearing more and more about, for example, obstetric risk with overweight and obese mothers. Well, this is the obesity generation coming of age. 15, 20 years ago, we thought about women getting overweight and obese in middle age after they'd had their children. But now the people are overweight and obese as teenagers and are then going on in their 20s to have their children and are having increased maternal complications. 
that's just the beginning of it. There's a whole wave of obesity coming behind that, and we're just going to be seeing more and more complications that we haven't thought of, such as these obstetric ones, plus the classic ones of diabetes and cardiovascular disease coming at a far earlier age. Yeah, thank you, Jennifer. I'd, I'd be interested, just as we round up, to know whether you feel or have noticed public health measures, perhaps in, in Scotland in particular, uh, that are trying to keep up with the pace of this epidemic, or whether you feel we're, we're far behind. I'm not sure that public health methods as such are, in fact, the answer. It depends how you define them. I think what's actually needed is quite significant political intervention. Mm-hmm. I think most people that are seriously involved in this area um, accept that the major problem is the food and the food that's available to us, the formulation of that food and the information that um, the general public can get about that food. And something needs to be done about that that's more than just giving a few people some recipes and telling them what not to eat. Most people know what not to eat. They know what's bad for them. They don't know what to eat instead, and they don't have it available to them in a form that they can afford to buy. And that's where the big problem lies. Wonderful. Well, with that, uh, I just want to thank you very much for joining us on the line today. This is obviously a highly topical subject, and we're delighted to publish it here at Heart. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for joining us for this latest edition of the Heart BMJ podcast. Please look online where our next podcast will be available soon.